interviewing Taliban commanders was such a shitting in your pants, right? Like you don't know what's going to happen because you've heard that these guys are really, really nasty characters. They probably are, but they're kind of on their, I guess, on their best behavior for you, or maybe it's just normal behavior. I don't know. Because you're Indian. Yeah, and surprisingly, that was the case. You know, there was absolutely no hatred towards India, even amongst the Taliban. Like you know, when I bring up Pakistan, they'd almost always go <laughs> because they hated Pakistan. And on route to bulk, there was suddenly this: the army checkpoints ended and the Taliban checkpoints started. What's the vibe generally? For me, my memory is very lucid. I was on one hand, I was like holding my sphincter in. I was like <laughs> absolutely sure I was going to shit my pants at any point. There's no real way to describe it. It's S N M vacations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh I guess it's one of those full-on BDSM uh, uh, moments, Life right? BDSM. The high from the pain kind of thing, or the high from the danger in this case kind of thing. Abhijit Ayer Mitra makes his debut on the Renvi show. It's his first out of many episodes that he's going to record with us. This is one of the most educated guests that I've had on the show. He's got a degree in international relations. He's experienced. a ton of things over the course of his life including what i find the most interesting which is thrill oriented tourism dangerous tourism dark tourism that's what the two episodes with him are about it's all about his experiences his stories of course there's going to be a little bit of geopolitics peppered in this man's visited afghanistan syria north korea china he has a lot to share he has a lot to teach the world about these cultures and honestly when it comes to such teachings you can only learn it through a podcast absolutely love the conversation with him i'm sure you're going to love it it's an epic episode you're going to enjoy it Abhijit Ayer Mitra, how are you? Seduce us with your mind, Abhijit Ayer Mitra. All we hear about you is that you're a super smart guy who has opinions on geopolitics, who has opinions on technology, and you seduce the internet with your mind. How are you? I'm doing very well, and you know, there's a big danger asking a gay guy to seduce people on. Uh, on tv so it's like i'm not even going to go there right now what's happening chal raha hai it's like you know i'm in kind of that zen zone kind of thing where okay. you know everything is going to clockwork and i don't have to do much to get additional stimuli or whatever okay. so it's like yeah other than it's, your ferocious learning process yeah yeah look learning is like you know wo to it's it's for me learning is like uh breathing mm. if i feel i haven't learned something new every day um it's it's a day wasted it's a day i'm never getting back and you know this is kind of why i kind of make a fool of myself and be a clown in public it's kind of almost self humiliation in a way because unless you do that when you start taking yourself very seriously that's when learning ends mm. you know that's when you're like oh people should listen to my opinion and it's not i need to listen to other people yeah. i'm 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 a big dick when it comes to uh who i listen to sure right but 
how do you know who to listen to if you're not hearing everybody okay every human being has a bunch of subjects that they are actually experts in what are mm. your subjects like for me it's probably content creation communication skills social skills mm. those are my actual subjects and then everything else is an outcome of that mm. maybe podcasting mm-hmm. but that's about it how about yourself mm. see what i would um, venture as my expertise is also where about 99 other person people will tell you ki ek number ka fraud quack hai theek hai so um, i would say security and defense foreign policy food uh government policy in general uh yeah i think travel travel okay. and fine uh, the fine life the good life kind okay. of thing i think yeah that would be it anything except sports <laughs> uh physical activity so um slogging it or doing a hard days work mm. except those subjects yeah okay all right yeah. uh i mean the subjects you named are actually very hot topics on the indian internet so let's dive into it uh we're recording this on the 5th of may 2023 hmm. uh it's probably going to be released two or three weeks from now i personally feel there's no point talking about uh that missile that supposedly yeah. and i highlight supposedly yeah. hit putin thanks yeah. to the ukrainians uh-huh. was it truly the ukrainians <laughs> or was it putin just like throwing a missile on his roof and say ah ukraine <laughs> see these days you the level of disinformation is so much you can't really tell तो दो ड्रोन्स थे एंड दोस टू ड्रोन्स वन हिट आई मीन फ्रॉम माय एंगल इट वाज द ईस्ट विंग ऑफ द क्रेमलिन बट इट कुड हैव बीन द वेस्ट विंग ऑफ द ग्रैंड पैलेस ऑफ द क्रेमलिन द सेकंड हिट द डोम व्हिच इज अपेरेंटली पुतिन्स ऑफिस इज डायरेक्टली अंडर दैट डोम ऑफसेट बट व्हेन यू लुक एट द स्केल ऑफ द एक्सप्लोजन इट कुंट हैव रियली डन मच टू दैट डोम राइट द थिंग इज द यूक्रेनियंस डिड एडमिट अ ड्रोन दैट गॉट शॉट डाउन द प्रीवियस वीक that had about 15 kilos of explosives in it are they capable of doing it yes they've carried out lots of uh, covert bombings but those have been intelligence style you know uh, car bombings and things like that in moscow uh it would be a considerable escalation but um as of now putin hasn't done anything and you know he's kind of not doing anything that we actually expect him to do what do we expect him to do go berserk uh he's been quite restrained in what he's been targeting in ukraine uh and you know people watching this will be going hello restrained it, that that's not what it looks like on the ground but by russian standards see there's a big difference between american war fighting and russian war fighting americans are very pinpoint accurate and precise uh so they win wars very quickly with great precision all the deaths that happen is after the occupation begins because they screw up all the social policy that comes after it like iraq or afghanistan and things after the occupation begins mm. as so, once they so you know they occupied iraq in about 30 days right but all the deaths that happened were after that period, period right because all the terrorism started they did something very stupid which was dismiss all the baath party members from government and you know to be a member of government you had to be in the bath party so when you have literally thrown out the entire trained workforce out onto the streets because of political affiliation all of them took up arms and that was the beginning of the iraq insurgency right mm. which then killed god knows how many hundreds of thousands of people 
Yeah. On a very primal level, I feel like um, I don't I don't blame them for this, but Americans live within America even in their mind, even they mentally. Do. They, they don't know too much about the outside world. It's it's not that they don't know. They actually have very very good sources because you know unlike India, India there is no money to go do primary research. Mm. There, you know, the moment you sort of get even in your batch towards the end of your bachelor's degree. you will get scholarships to actually go to the region of your studies spend a year two years collect primary and primary data is always gold right you you'll always learn going learn more going to a place than reading about it primary data means the data you collect when you're there yourself in exactly. that region okay exactly uh so they do a lot of that the problem is they're very jaundiced towards points of view that they don't want to hear so the guy who dismissed the bath party uh this thing paul bremer uh was a dolt um and he was listening to these sort of wishful prognostications from Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney on top which is why he did what he did uh but there was no pushback from the system see so uh that's the danger of the american system they have the knowledge they have an aversion to listening to points of view that they don't like okay. and they're very binary uh you know like george bush used to say you're either with me or you're against me mm. there's no you can be with me and still shades Not, of grey mm. afghanistan same thing they managed to defeat the taliban in a month two months i forget now how what it was and all the problems started after that well i mean not all the problem but the problems didn't stop after that what's happening behind the curtains they extracting oil from the those countries or they just there what 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 do they don't show on the news so you know i'm not a big believer in the sort of deep state uh okay. conspiracy theory kind of thing uh is there corruption involved in it so for example does the military industrial complex and big business want contracts yes will they lobby for certain wars so that you know existing stocks of bombs will be depleted and you'll get new uh, contracts and things yes is there also a very conscientious and strong objection to it within the system yes is there some level of you know a uh, a uh, really naive a uh, stupid ideology that you know we need to give the world freedom and democracy kind of nonsense uh is also there and you know that's a very dangerous kind of ideology but it's also there so it's a combination of so many things you can't um you really can't assign a value to how much each of these things play are they extracting oil no they were actually quite keen on giving the afghan resources back to the afghans they were quite keen on giving uh you know uh for iraq to become a sort of prosperous society but you know for all that wisdom and knowledge that comes out of america like i said they they don't understand that human beings develop differently under different stimulus uh you know you can't just go give people democracy and expect them to become like america overnight it doesn't happen that way that is not how societies evolve you think that's their true core intention that they're spreading democracy all over the world no there, uh, there are economic of course, layers of course there's okay. economic layers to it there's economic layers to it there's also ideological layers to it which uh, are uh, which are this freedom okay that you know uh, it makes a liberty. better society liberty freedom and democracy um they actually believe that they are doing good for people by making them free okay i find it very childlike almost it's quite endearing where it not for the fact it kills so many people 
Mm. Uh, you know, it's like, um, have you watched this movie Omen? Oh, way back, but yes. Yeah. Uh, think of it as Damien minus the diabolical intent, mm. but say an accidental Damien who goes around killing his nanny and his parents without realizing what he's done. Okay. Okay. Okay, cool. Fair. Yeah. Uh, the context here is that Omen was a movie where the kid was possessed or he was the devil. He was the devil incarnate. Avatar he, of he had the that, devil. yeah. He had that 666 in yeah. his... Uh, somewhere under... I mean, the audience can't get yeah. me being bald. But anyway, uh, under the hair, somewhere it was buried okay. here. Uh, and you're saying that they basically have shades of good intent, shades of money-making intent, go out there, go into a country... Uh, with the intention of giving that country democracy and liberty, they also cause a lot of damage because possibly the social science that they understand doesn't apply to that country. Right. And a lot of their, uh, you know, their baseline is World War II. That they destroyed, they crushed uh. Germany, they crushed Japan. Uh, and both of them were horrible dictatorships, Italy too. Uh, they gave them democracy. And these countries turned into nice, peaceful states that you know, that are still independent, that are still very independent, that can do things that really piss off America every now and then. But they're generally within the American worldview of things. They are integrated into an American market. They do not have these sort of dictatorial tendencies. And the people are prosperous, happy, healthy, and they're not dying in wars. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they believe this can be done everywhere. What they forget is... That, you know, Germany had 100 years of development prior to World War II. Uh, more, uh, possibly. Uh, uh, same with Japan. You know, in 1870, when Commodore Perry goes and opens up Japan, uh, uh, since then, they've been modernizing, right? Uh, Italy, uh, Mussolini had already started modernizing Italy since about 1920 when he came to power. Uh, Afghanistan is not like that. Uh, Iraq is not like that. They were nowhere near the human development that these other three countries were. For you to do this, that it just needs one thing. So, for example, let me give this to you in builder terminology, right? Uh, say the builder really screwed up the building. Uh, you will spend the rest of your life fixing something or, or the other. The uh, roof will leak, so you'll have to keep painting every year. Uh, the uh, uh, pipes will burst. Uh, the geyser will stop working. The hot water uh, system will stop working. The AC venting would be all wrong. You have to keep spending. Uh, and so it's small amounts of money that you keep spending, keep spending, keep spending, keep spending. On the other hand, if you go to a good builder, which is to say good human development, you invest in human beings, not in machines. Uh, you just have to fix one thing. This guy just needs money. And if I give him that investment capital, he can then grow from that. Right? That's the difference. Mm. So, uh, once a country develops, like Germany, Japan, and Italy had at that point, it required very little to, for them to become stable. The basis of this is education, right? Total. Like once you Total. go through an education system, you are changed as a human being. Education system and uh, jobs, which give you okay. that kind of discipline, okay. where the uh, population is not overwhelmingly unemployed, rioting on the streets. They actually have jobs to go to. They can't think about, they can't watch politics. They'd rather not. Uh, they'd much rather go to jobs and earn money to put food on the table or take their holidays and things like okay. that. Okay, bit of a rookie question. Mm -hmm. Why do we see so many kids losing their limbs in Iraq and Afghanistan? Like, why are civilians then harmed once the Americans are there? Um, it's a lot to do with resistance that comes to 
American rule. See, Americans might think that they're giving you freedom and democracy, but the oppressed people might not actually want that freedom. So, for example, when I was in Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, it was very surprising in the cities in Herat, in Kabul, in uh, uh, Mazari Sharif, they would all be like, you know, uh, this is a good thing. Uh, you know, we want this to continue because women have rights and things like that. You go into the villages in Afghanistan and their take on it was completely different. It was like women's liberation. What exactly is that? They don't even know what that is. It's not in their priority list. So, you know, it's literally like going to see if you're selling a weight loss and muscle building program to me, clearly because I look like a hippopotamus, I need it. But if somebody is trying to sell that to you, it's a very stupid salesman, right? So different people want different things. And I don't think the American Americans think that everybody wants what they want. Mm. Okay. And that's frequently not the case. Lack of empathy. Or no, little large scale. Uh, it's a bit too much empathy. It's suffocating empathy. It's like a typical Indian or Jewish mother who, uh, you know, overfeeds you. Overfeeds you to the point of suffocating. Mm. Okay. Why the f*** are you in Afghanistan, bro? Because <laughs> uh, I'm a nut job. So I do... To, so there's a lot of work travel. Like almost every month I'm out of the country on work. But, whoa, 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 whoa. Why work travel? Like what are you working? Conferences and things okay. like that, right? But those are like, uh, they're fun in that you meet people. But you know, it's the same standard routine here to the airport. Uh, there's already a car waiting for you there. Uh, Five-star hotel, a conference for three days and you come back. You're not actually... And, you know, the visits are all curated to the okay. predetermined restaurant and things like that. Maximum, you'll get to do one or two days of private tourism on a Saturday okay. or Sunday if you time it properly. But parallelly, to give context, you have a degree in international relations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What is your occupation right now? Because of that? Uh, I'm a think tanker. So I work at a think okay. tank where I'm a senior fellow. What I don't know what that exactly means. But anyway, I'm a senior fellow. And uh, mostly what I do is uh, fundraising for my think tank and training up the kids because I love working with kids because, you know, curiosity is such a lovely thing to nurture, uh, teaching them to write, teaching them how to think, okay. et cetera, et cetera. In Afghanistan? Not in Afghanistan. <laughs> no, no, no. So uh, Afghanistan was because, uh, so this is what my most of my travel looks like. But then I do two big trips every year. One is to a, a holiday for about a month and a half, two months, which is just going off to Europe, lying or Thailand or Cambodia or something like that, lying down on a beach, eating great food and enjoying myself. The second is always an adventure trip going to places that nobody else wants to go to. So I went to North Korea, uh, to uh, uh, Afghanistan, to Iraq. Podcast content. Yeah, man. Go, yeah. go on. To Syria. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to Saudi Arabia next. Uh a bit too late because I wanted to go see a public execution, but uh, <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman has banned public execution. Yeah. So mere sab, uh, all my dreams are now shattered. Uh, Saudi uh, Arabia has its face turn. You know what face turn is? Now they've become super liberal. Yeah, You know, yeah. it's like amazing. Uh, you know, I, I think the whole world, uh, you know, thank you Jamal Khashoggi, but your sacrifice was worth it. Thank <laughs> you for your sacrifice, but MBS is my man. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, there's... Um, 
Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. Uh, by the end of this year, uh, in winter, I'm planning on going to Oymyakon, which is the coldest place on earth. It goes down to minus 60 degrees Celsius. Where is it? Uh, it's uh, in far eastern Russia, uh, north, uh, northeast of Mongolia. Uh, so, you know, this. I like these kind of things because you're not, there are no five-star hotels. You're lucky if you get decent toilets, but you're going around talking to people. You're going totally dressed as a local or unassuming, uh, actually meeting people, talking to them, seeing everything that is not taught to you in books or told to you on TV, right? And that's why I went to Afghanistan because everything we've read about Afghanistan is from American or British people writing in books. How many Indians have actually gone to places like Ghor or Ghazni or sat down with, uh, you know, uh, 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 Taliban commanders and spoken to them. Uh, nobody did. And my thing was, boss, when an American goes and interviews a Taliban commander, he, he's coming from a different place. He understands things differently. He contextualizes differently. I'm an Indian. I will contextualize things very differently. The questions I ask will also be very different. The way I ask those questions, and you know this because you're a podcaster, you know, it so much depends on how you ask the question. So, uh, that's why I was there. So I spent a whole month out there uh, doing tourism, yes, but mostly going and interviewing Taliban commanders to see how they felt, uh, what their outlook was, etc., etc. I got a lot of things wrong, but you also get a lot of things right. I think interviewing Taliban commanders was such... <sighs> you're shitting in your pants, right? Like, you don't know what's going to happen because you've heard that these guys are really, really nasty characters. They probably are, but they're kind of on their, I guess, on their best behavior for you. Or maybe it's just normal behavior. I don't know. Because you're Indian? Uh, yeah. And surprisingly, that was the case. You know, there was absolutely no hatred towards India, even amongst the Taliban. Like, you know, when I bring up uh, uh, Pakistan, they'd almost always go, <laughs> because they hated Pakistan. These were people who were literally Haqqani network, which is one wing of the uh, 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 Taliban, or Quetta Shura, which is the other wing. I don't know which one they were because there was kind of a linguistic problem. It was all done through interpreters. Uh, they think they can speak Hindi. They, their Hindi is kind of unintelligible to us. I mean, they think they're speaking Hindi, but it's not Hindi. Um, their families have been held hostage by the ISI. Uh, you know, they're told to do certain things because of the ISI, but their own view isn't beyond their area. How have their families been held hostage by the ISI? Because they all uh, went over the border uh, to avoid the American bombing or an American pacification campaign or whatever. And uh, the Pakistanis always knew who the Taliban were. So they'd keep your family and hold them as hostages, kind of. I mean, very comfortable Hostage situation, but hostages nevertheless. Sure. To ensure that you behave and do what the Pakistanis want you to do. Right? And this was chronic. And you know, they actually have a great sense of being Afghan. There's a great pride in being Afghan. And they don't like a, a foreign country as they see it interfering in their affairs. Whereas all I ever encountered for India, except maybe in Kandahar. Kandahar was the one exception, uh, was a whole load of affection for India. 
to be fair all these interviews were con- uh, uh, conducted in uh, when i was high on hashish uh, <laughs> so you know because it's a cultural thing out yeah, there yeah 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 so you know if you go interview them uh you will start by smoking i think it's a hookah i mean it's some something chillam where, like an afghani chillam ha kind of i mean it's somewhere between a hookah and a chillam uh where you have hashish right and the thing is there's always one guy with a ak47 or ak74 nice. whatever standing there <laughs> to see if you're drugged up enough to break the ice to break the ice because see that is how trust is built in their society we both have hash and there is this bonding like bros uh, uh, kind of whatever bro just uh, get the chill i'm sorry no 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 i didn't go i didn't sorry go on <laughs> uh, and uh it's it, it's 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 so cultural out there you know it's like it, it's almost like here you know you bring out the coffee or the uh, mithai or whatever when somebody comes there it's like okay you want to have a serious chat let's get the hash out first um i mean it was I'm not going to do it again but it was fun. And uh were you scared for your life? That maybe when you're high on hash they'll just shoot you with the AK47. In the first 4 5 times I was very very scared. Because you you know my first encounter so the first 7 days were being a tourist in Afghanistan, right? So from my first encounter with the Taliban proper was in Mazar-e-Sharif going to the city of Balkh. Balkh is an old ruined city so it was sacked by Timur. It was sacked by Genghis Khan. and it's a lovely walled city it's also where alexander's wife roxan came from and it's also apparently where zoroaster was born so uh, on our way to bulk is this thing called the nau gumbad masjid uh, the mosque of nine domes which was a uh, 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 which was a buddhist uh, uh, stupa or something before and before that it was a zoroastrian fire temple and the guy there the caretaker there he um, he lost his entire family sometime during the war and all he does is he caretakes that uh, mosque it's a, it's in ruins but he caretakes it and he grows his own poppies and hash and things like that and so that was the first time i tried hash and on route to bulk there was suddenly this the army checkpoints ended and the taliban checkpoints started and that's where they were you know with ak47s out there and you just know these guys are not army what's the vibe generally uh our driver was quite relaxed i was not i was on i had never had a high like that right that hash high kind of thing uh so for me my memory is very lucid i was on one hand i was like holding my sphincter in i was like <laughs> absolutely sure i was going to shit my pants at any point but i was also kind of uh very excited uh there's that thrill in danger as well i mean kind of i mean uh I, it's there's no real way to describe it it's snm vacations yeah 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 oh i guess it's one of those full on bdsm uh, uh moments Life right BDSM. the high from the pain kind of thing or the high from the danger in this case kind of thing i i meant what's the vibe of those guys like when i'm sure when you look they, at them in the they're eye, quite relaxed okay they're quite relaxed right they they're not on edge mm. um and the first four five interviews were quite intimidating like as in i was like uh the hash went a long way calming me down um so that was there but then in kandahar it was it became a very nasty situation because when i landed 
uh, you know, there was this, uh, the uh, guard that I'd hired, he heard on the radio chatter that there's an Indian in town. And that became a thing in Kandahar. So I had to be evacuated. Why? Uh, I don't know why. Kandahar was the only city I found that was quite hostile. I couldn't stay. I was in Kandahar for all of three, four hours before uh, the local commander out there sent whatever to pick me up. To And at that point, I didn't know if this was a setup or something where I'd be kidnapped and taken and uh, found with my head chopped off like uh, you visualize that yeah till you realize they've got a very strict honor code they've got a very very strict honor code about these things about any killing that they'll carry out well about giving you their word and their secure uh, saying that you're secure kind of thing so the Taliban in parts of Afghanistan minus Kandahar told you that listen you'll be safe so even in Kandahar I was probably safe the thing was Everybody was talking about an Indian who had come. Why? I don't know. Maybe the airport authorities leaked it or something trying to stir up mischief. I I still don't know. But so what if you're Indian? It becomes an issue because then they kidnap you. For money? Uh, for money or okay. what? I mean, you don't know what they kidnap you for, right? It's, it's, it's a very disorganized kind of thing. So there'll be uh, uh, wheels within wheels who'd want you for money or to, uh, you know. They'll uh, make you build a robotic suit. For their, no, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> no, not that I'm a scientist or anything. That robotic suit will be a gift for their enemies because yeah. it'll be like, it'll break down every like yeah. five seconds. <laughs> but um, I did at that, I, I don't think I've panicked as much as I did at that point of thing. And a lot of it was the stimuli coming with, you know, my driver and the guard telling me to get the f*** out. If you hadn't gone, what would have happened? What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. With the benefit of hindsight, it's very easy to say probably nothing. But then, you know, you never really know. You intuitively felt like your life was in danger. I panicked. Okay. I, I, I still remember I couldn't think straight. Uh, I wasn't screaming or going hysterical or anything. Because when I panic, I kind of lock down and go very, very quiet. Okay. Why don't you describe Afghanistan a little bit to just take people into that world? Mm. Is it true that it's like a dry Himachal Pradesh? Yeah, I mean, if you've gone to Ladakh and things like that, that's kind of what you're seeing. Like that, you know, the lunar landscape as they call it. Mm. Uh, so parts of Himachal, Uttarakhand that you go in the higher Himalayas, that's kind of what it's like. Very dry, but there are sometimes lush valleys in the middle of all the dryness, right? So when you go to uh, the Panshir Valley where Ahmad Shah Masood you know, uh, resisted the Russians for like uh, 10 years or whatever. It's lush green. So it's like, it, it's almost like a cartoon. The hills are totally dry and barren. The drive up there is totally barren. And suddenly in the middle, there's this beautiful blue stream with fertile green fields on both sides. Right. So it's, um, it, it's a very stark landscape. It's a very beautiful landscape. Um, and you can understand why it produces, why it's a very unforgiving landscape. You don't have much room for error out there if you're a pre-industrial agricultural society. What does that mean? Uh, so, you know, if, you're, if you industrialize and you start having manufacturing jobs and things like that, you can import your food from anywhere, right? You're not going to have famines. You're, you're connected to the whole world, etc., etc. It's like, you know, say something like Montana 
or the rocky mountain states where you know even small villages will have these six lane highways mm. running through them well not six lane but at mm. least really good highways running through them and uh, if you want to go to say buenos aires the next day or you take a local uh, flight or a helicopter out to the to arizona and then uh, catch a, a plane from uh, whatever macaron uh, airport whatever or nevada me sorry but whatever you, you get what i mean um here it's your valley is your village it's your whole world it's your whole life you probably haven't even been outside of there if your cutoff in winter and food is running short there will be starvation there will probably be death so you need to maximize your survivability and so you go raiding you uh you raid the next valley or the next village really it's very so, active practice today. it's a very active practice it's quite violent uh and you know afghanistan is a society that you suspect has gone back in time because when you go see the mosques in uh, you know places like herat for example uh these are mosques which could not have been built by a poor society that you see right now these had to have been incredibly rich societies uh it's actually gone back in time where you know that silk route trade has reduced uh so the wealth has reduced very considerably so they had to go back to kind of subsistence farming and things and it's a society that's kind of devolved so there's two versions of the taliban that you hear of one is the violent version that does all the things that the mainstream news uh talks about that the kind of news that spreads online and the other one is this like security oriented version of the taliban because maybe if you really take an empathetic uh viewpoint and you put yourself in the shoes of those afghani kids who would have grown up in the last 20 years seeing all this war yeah. they probably would have wanted to fix their whole country mm-hmm. uh there has to have been some group of people like that so i'm assuming they've made it safe they have uh it's you know the truth is probably variable and somewhere in between so for example all the older people i spoke to in afghanistan remember that the first time the taliban came to power you know in 98 99 sometime at that time they were very very nasty because you know they were they were like isis you know when isis came to power in al raqqa everything was ideology it wasn't the practicality okay and now the isis has gone through puberty and uh, sorry uh, taliban has gone through puberty and matured and now it's like a 30 40 year old man so they're much more restrained this is this is all relative relatively we're talking about right uh, it's uh, it's hell for women that's all uh, not as bad as it was before okay uh the enforcement is a lot less pervasive and a lot less strict so for example a lot of the friends i made when uh, kabul fell were desperate to get out and we were trying to arrange visas for them uh in some cases we succeeded in most cases we did not succeed uh but i'm still in touch with the people where we did not succeed and they're like you know we don't want to come now it's kind of it's not as bad as we thought it would be so uh it's um uh, joy of podcasting will never hear this on the news yeah and i'm probably they're going to make memes out of this and troll me for saying this oh, okay, but big deal uh it is you know i mean i have to tell you what i saw not sure. what other people want me to say sure uh so 
you know, people make do. We somehow think that, you know, unless, uh, you know, your childhood is going, getting drunk and vomiting all over the car back home and, uh, you know, uh, having gratuitous sex every second day or uh, every 30 seconds or whatever it is the current acceptable frequency is, uh, you're somehow oppressed or whatever. People have different realities. They live different lives. Um, people make do. They adjust. You know, it's it's a natural coping mechanism. Are the raids still happening in those villages? I suspect they would. Because it's extremely remote. Exactly. Okay. You won't really be able to tell. But the kind of extraordinary violence you were seeing against an occupying power, which was nasty, because that is vastly reduced out there. Okay. What's the vibe of Afghans in general? Not the Talibans. Taliban people. Talibani. What's the word? I've, I've never... Talibani. Huh? Okay. Um, like, so you know, this is something very common I've seen in uh, Kashmir, Afghanistan, a lot of places. Conflict societies that have had long conflict, they're schizophrenic, they're bipolar. Uh, you know, they'll go from, they lie a lot because lying is kind of a protection mechanism because you never know what is the right answer and wrong answer which where you end up with a bullet in your head. <laughs> um, they can go from extremely warm to extremely hostile very quickly. Uh, I could not live there. For me, being where all I have, uh, it would be a nightmare for me. But they've grown up in the middle of all of that and adjusted, right? So, for example, if you go to the villages, I couldn't interview a single woman outside the cities. Uh, because they'll, if a woman approached me for something, they would have probably shot her. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's full burqa. And it doesn't matter if they were pro-government or pro-Taliban at that time. At that time, remember, the government was in power. This was 2019, mm. early 2019. Uh, uh, the lived reality of those women was burqa, no talking to men outside. Uh, only the city women, if you went to the university or bookshops and things like that, you could have a conversation with them. Okay. Uh, so, and you know, this was something that came out in, so for example, in Mazari Sharif, which is largely an Uzbek city, because there are many nationalities in Afghanistan. So, you know, the previous year in 2018, I'd been to Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan is, you you see that it's how much a modern national border can completely change the mindset, right? So Uzbekistan was captured in the late 1800s by a Russian general called Konstantin von Kaufmann Turkestansky for the Tsar. His great, 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 great granddaughter is a very dear friend of mine. And, you know, she shows me all these archival things that her great, great granddad did. But... When I went to Uzbekistan, it was really strange. You know, I know when to play up my Indianness and when not to. So, for example, in Egypt, Uzbekistan and North Korea, I'll wear a kurta pajama and not jeans or t-shirt because then they're like, ah, you're an Indian. Really? Yeah. And they want to have a chat with you. They want to know more about you. They're not interested in the Americans. Which other country did you say? Egypt? Egypt, North Korea, Israel, Syria. I mean, Israel and Syria can't stand each other. But when they see an Indian in a kurta and a pajama... I suspect it works for hey, women. Butter chicken. Uh, uh, Not butter chicken. 
but um, so in Egypt they're like Amitabh Bachchan, Amitabh Bachchan, wow. you know Amitabh Bachchan. Mm. Um, in Syria they want to come have a chat with you. In North Korea they're like, oh, you don't look like all these other people, and you don't dress like all these other people. By all these so, other people, they mean fellow North Koreans. No, the uh, uh, Gora Admis that I was traveling with in North Korea. There are other people who come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's carefully yeah. curated groups that go out. It's all there. psychos like you. Yeah. Like, oh, let's go to North Korea for a Exactly. Great. Um, and, you know, so Uzbekistan, me kya tha? you know, I went to this uh, in, uh, was it Bukhara or Samarkand? I forget. One of those two cities, there is the Madrasa of Ulug Beg. Ulug Beg was the guy who drove Babar out of Fargana and forced him to come to India. He was also Timur's great-grandson or grand, Timur's grandson. And what happened with him uh, in that madrasa was this Uzbek guy, he sees me in this shocking pink kurta and similar white pajamas as this. Uh, and he says, oh, you're an Indian. Come talk to me in broken English. And we go into the madrasa and he takes out a bottle of vodka and uh, sala, which is... Uh, Salted cured pork fat. It's an Islamic country. It's not an Islamic country. It's technically a secular country. But a muazin or a scholar at a madrasa, one of the most historic madrasas, uh, you're sitting and having this conversation with him over vodka and pork. What's uh, his religion? Muslim. He's actually really? a religious scholar. Yeah. And the rest of the country? And I didn't ask him because there was a big language barrier. There was no interpreter there. Okay. Uh, the rest of the country is also quite liberal. They're very, very modern. Because see, the Soviets, what they did in the 1920s when they took power was they shoved industrialization down their throat. They built factories. They said no more. If you went to a mosque, you'd probably be taken out and shot. Uh, you know, so you had to openly show that you were not religious to fit in. And so they completely... Uh, de-ethnicized them, de, uh, de-Uzbeked them into, you know, this urban homogenous worker class. Was the USSR also in that same zone about religion and spiritualism? As far as I know, they were, right? Uh, well, I mean, they hated spiritualism. Uh, they used to crack down very brutally on all religion. Even Christianity? Uh, even Christianity. Really? It was tolerated to an extent in that uh, outward signs are tolerated, but any real sign of religiosity would be crushed very, very brutally. What would count uh, as a real... Uh, going, praying five times a day for a Muslim. Uh, going to a mosque every Friday. The Christian version? Uh, the Christian version, again, would be going to church too often. So, um, you know, for them, uh, we went down to the Termez border crossing, which is the border crossing between Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. And there were literally Uzbek women wearing skirts and shorts there who'd sit up on the hill uh, with binoculars and telescopes and look at fellow Uzbeks on the other side of the border while drinking vodka or Coke. I mean, a lot of it was cold drinks. There wasn't that much vodka. I just saw one bottle of vodka there. But uh, looking at fellow Uzbeks on the other side completely smothered in burkas. And for them, this was their equivalent of going to the zoo. They're seeing fellow Uzbeks who have not developed, who do not know the lifestyle that a modern Uzbek does, a modern Uzbek Uzbek does, as opposed to an Afghan Uzbek does. And the next year when I went to Mazari Sharif, which is very close to the, Af uh, 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 to the Uzbek border from the Afghan side, 
the mindset was totally different so you know in india you hear that the taliban is mainly a pashtun thing the uzbeks don't want to have anything to do with it uh, the uh, hazaras and the shias don't want it that wasn't what i found there because when i was talking to uzbek women in the city they're like you know uh, the taliban is us you i mean, mean what in, are they in an afghan city yeah and they were willingly wearing the burqa full burqa uh, so you know it um it it plays with your mind you know th- th- there's so much that you're kind of fed which you just accept as truth till you actually face a situation where same people same ethnicity just separated by a border in history how can they be so totally different do you see war in their eyes no i've never i've i keep reading this thing you can see the devastation of war in their eyes you can see the trauma in their eyes you can't i've never been able to see it anywhere that i've been because mm-hmm. uh humans are extraordinarily resilient they cope you know they find happiness wherever they can even under the worst circumstances i think it's human to find happiness and what i've seen is that the worse the situation the more people take pleasure in the small things in life and it makes you feel really blessed what do they think of white people in america in general afghanistan they don't like white people at all america uh even america especially america or even america uh, uh, even america so they just generally don't like white people they don't like white people because even russia had like taken um, over even russia i mean you know when you have these political conversations they're like oh you know the russians weren't that bad the americans are a lot worse which is complete rubbish the russians actually were much more indiscriminate in their killing uh but <clears throat> you know the older era that you have not lived through always seems better than the current bad period mm. okay i didn't take that uh, too seriously but they do not like the white man and parallelly they look at india as a friend they do across the board even the taliban you know they like they thought i was i i have some influence in delhi or whatever i'm like <laughs> sorry i can't i can't do deadly squat in delhi but <laughs> i wasn't going to tell them that but uh, they're like you know you should tell your government to come talk to us uh, uh things like that so it was um uh, it 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 uh i did not see any uh ill will towards india uh, quite the contrary a huge amount of uh you know uh a positive emotion they do want to talk to you they feel you're one of them uh they'll come and sing bollywood songs um uh, which are not hindi uh they think they're singing hindi so for example one uh, my um uh, the guy who was driving me around for about 2 3 days he used to keep insisting on uh, singing suhana safar aur ye mausam hansi okay except he couldn't say suhana safar aur ye mausam hansi he would say aju baju ka chu pachu chu 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 he thought he was do you understand and then he turned around and say you understand <laughs> like yeah sure <laughs> okay yeah you don't want to tell them dude that's not hindi but should have sung bora bora dil kar you know that no no man. no you felt connected to him acha well assuming they speak arabic right no 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 they speak uh, dari uh, which is proto persian uh, well i mean uh, some version of farsi dari speakers will tell you that uh, it is the original persian 
Whereas the Persians will tell you that Persian is the original Persian. Okay. Uh, but uh, they speak different languages. Uh, I could understand, say, about 10 to 15% because, you know, we use so much Farsi even in Hindi today. Did, did you see kids playing cricket? Uh, no. I never saw anybody play cricket. How is that country coming up as a cricket nation? <laughs> they've, they've become really good. That's the cricket context. Every kid that I saw was playing football. I did not come across a single cricket match. I was very curious to see cricket out there, but nobody was playing cricket. Everybody was playing football. Kidnapping kids from Pakistan? Fast bowler, come! But, kuch nahi tha. Really? Nothing. Yeah. How are they so good at cricket? I don't know. Like, I don't follow cricket. Sorry. You know, you've taken me into outside comfort zone okay, because cricket is like one of those things I know nothing about. The context is, uh, we used to have three great subcontinental teams and Bangladesh was the fighting team. You know, they all try, try to be at yeah. a level. And everyone expected that Bangladesh would become really good when I was growing up. Mm. Sri Lanka was solid, consistent yeah. team. And Indian and Pakistan, are the yeah. giants always. Yeah. Indian Pakistan have like stayed at the same giant status. Sri Lanka has tanked. Mm. Uh, Bangladesh hasn't grown the way we expected it to, but they've become better. Mm. But Afghanistan is at the same level that Bangladesh is at now. Probably. Probably. Not bad, yeah. Not so bad. Where Impressed. are the reasons? And cricket is a very resource-centric game. You need to have good bats. You need to have season balls. Mm. You need to have balls to play the game anyway. True. Like, so where, what is happening in Afghanistan? But tell me, are those Afghans who have grown up in Afghanistan or the Afghans who have grown up in Delhi or Rawalpindi or things like that? Man, I don't know. See, that's another thing. Because um, I didn't even see an organized cricket pitch in uh, Afghanistan ever. Fair. There are parts of Delhi where there are actual Afghan restaurants where we'll be served by Yeah, Afghans man. I, it's Lajpat Nagar. Yeah. So there's a place called Mazar out there which is my favorite restaurant. So I'll go there once every two, three months or something like that to get my Afghan food fix. Yeah. yeah. The beautiful people. The lovely people. No, I mean, they look beautiful. No, they physically also, they're yeah. very... Um, you know, you could be quite dark and fit in there. You could be a white man and also fit in there because some Afghans are very, very fair. Uh, it, it's such, uh, ethnically, it's, it's such a wide uh, melting pot of different cultures. There, there are right. people who look kind of uh, Mongolo-Sinitic kind of thing. Um, and they're very, very, very attractive I think the only thing I couldn't deal with in Afghanistan, well, two things I couldn't deal with in Afghanistan is that their uh, hygiene culture is as bad as India. So the public toilets stink as bad as they do in India. You'd rather not go to a public toilet when you're traveling. You'd rather go outside. Does it and smell like Arabic coffee? Sorry, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, bro. It does not. I Arabic coffee to. smells really good, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you have a lot of black coffee, how you... Never mind. We're going... Oh, God. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know. I've never had that much black coffee. But um, uh, but to be fair, you know, every time I've been to countries that have a lot of that thick black coffee served in a teacup, uh, their toilet culture is actually very clean. So I've never had oh. toilet nightmares in Syria or Jordan... Or mm. Iraq, for that matter. Mm. No, no. Uh, and the second thing which was very problematic for me is uh, eating sheep. Why? Because, you know, in India, what we call mutton is actually goat. We right. eat goats. They eat sheep. Which is lamb, right? Like Yeah, but see, lamb is under six months, it's lamb. They eat mutton, mutton. So, uh, in India, what happens is 
from zero to six months, it's called kid. Over six months, it's called uh, Chevron, technically. That's the technical no term for what we eat. Uh, with sheep, zero to six months is lamb. That's when the flavor isn't so developed. It's quite mild. Six months to two years is a hogget. And over two years is mutton, where, you know, the fat has developed, the animal has become big, puberty has set in for several seasons now. And, you know, fat is a big capturer of flavor. So it reeks. Really? Yeah. So, you know, and you are what you eat. Like, you know, when you go to Bihar or Bengal, you smell the mustard oil on my fellow Bengalis. <laughs> uh, you smell the sheep meat everywhere. And I find that very problematic. What does I, it smell like? To me, it smells quite rancid. It smells like armpits that haven't been washed for like 10, 12 days. Really? Yeah. What kind of food do they normally eat? There's a lot of bread. There's a lot of meat. Yeah. And that's about that's, it. that's what I find really strange, right? Like uh, the initial uh, seven days, which was the tourist part of it, my guide told me, you know, uh, no, no, we actually eat a lot of vegetables, but it's all at home. But the, the remaining uh, 22, 23 days, I was only eating at people's houses. Uh, and there was no vegetable ever served to me. It was just meat in some form or the other, uh, mostly grilled, uh, not even gravies that much, very dry food. And you, no, when you come masalas? From, no masalas. Maximum, there'll be jeera. Jeera, salt, If meat. at all that. Basically just salt and meat. Damn. With a pulao. And then everybody makes the same pulao. There is raisins in it, uh, carrots, onion, a little bit of jeera, cumin, and uh, basmati rice. And that's it. Uh, there's fried fish, which is just turmeric and salt. Uh, no spices, really. Um, very, very dry food. Uh, I mean, not even something like when you come from India, which is a very gravy centric. Uh, I mean, you have your dry stuff, but you don't feel complete unless there's some gravy item on the table. Right? To enjoy wetness. Exactly. To enjoy <laughs> How do you make that sound so perverted? Um, I'm bouncing off your energy. <laughs> so he just called me a pervert. Did you see that? He called me a pervert. Uh, Indians enjoy wetness, bro. Need some wetness in your mouth. To yeah. really think that, okay, I had a good time in my meal today. Okay, let's move on because that's, yeah. Okay. Um, but um, it was just really dry food. And at the end of it, I was like, I need my spices. I need my dal. I need my, you know, when I came back for a whole month, I just couldn't look at meat. And the only thing I was eating every single day was spinach and karela, bitter good. And uh, not potato and not carrots. It was just green leafy vegetables in some form or the other. No concept of restaurants or anything? No, no, lots of restaurants. Lots of restaurants. It's, 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 it's a bit of your culture where you'll actually go out. Uh, and, you know, restaurants aren't very pricey out there. Uh, uh, you know, th there's restaurants for every strata of society. So, you know, even the average uh, uh, guy can go to a roadside uh, kebabri and eat a stick of mutton, as in proper mutton. Not what Indians call mutton, but sheep rancid mutton. sheep mutton kebabs. Yeah. With, with a roti, with lots of roti. Uh, they have lots of bread. 
they're mostly a bread culture, not so much. Rice is more a celebration dish, but mostly bread. What about rich Afghans? Rich Afghans eat very much the same thing, which I found quite surprising that there's absolutely no diversity like of cuisines. And at the same time, there is a great democratization of cuisine because what the poor man eats is also what the rich man eats. What do you do if you have money in Afghanistan? How do they feel about being governed by the Taliban? Uh, well, I don't know how they feel now, but when I was there, they absolutely, all the rich people absolutely did not want to be governed by the Taliban. The rich people that I've stayed in touch with are now like, it's not so bad. It's okay. not as bad as we thought it okay. would be. Uh, and the one thing I noticed, because, you know, the, I was making friends there for the first time. So, you know, you can't get too intrusive about their private lives. But something I noticed was all the pictures of them living life and enjoying themselves was in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Doha or something like that or Paris or London. It wasn't in Afghanistan. And I suspect that's what rich Afghans do. They use Dubai as a money laundering and money storing pad. Okay. Just like the rest of the world. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, how do they look back at Osama bin Laden? There is no collective memory at all of really? it. Because I went on asking about Osama bin Laden. They're like, who? Who? Kind of. I mean, really? Yeah. I mean, they've all kind of heard about him, but they're like, what does that have to do with me? So what was their impression when America started taking over the country? These white boys are here just taking over. So, you know, most of the people I met were in their 30s and 40s who don't have too much of a memory before the takeover. Uh, the ones who did, again, it was a mixed bag. Some of them felt that the uh, Russian occupation was somehow better. Uh, which I think was more of a sort of, you know, placebo to say that time was good and this time is not good kind of thing. There were a lot of people who were like, it's different. The city dwellers had mostly come back from exile in Pakistan or India or Iran. So, you know, it was, uh, and for them, it was more hope about the future and they were worried about what's happening right now. It was a very, very mixed bag. There was no uniformity of views on that. Geopolitically, What's happening now in the Afghanistan region? Is it true that the Taliban is gearing up for a bit of a battle with Pakistan? That's true. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So, you know, I got one thing very, very wrong in my analysis when I came back and I got one thing very, very right. What I got very, very wrong was thinking that the Afghan army will be able to put up a fight after the Americans left. And, you know, when the government forces collapsed, we were doing satellite analysis I wasn't wrong in that they probably could have put up a fight. They didn't want to put up a fight. What they do is at the point of contact between the Taliban forces and the army, they would go up to the point of contact, they would abandon their tanks or armored vehicles and without them getting destroyed and they would just move back. So it was more like they threw the battle than they lost the battle. Okay. In to save cases. their lives. No, there was some kind of an arrangement. There was some kind, because remember when the Taliban took over in 98, they went straight, when they took over Kabul, they went straight for the UN compound, uh, tortured and killed Najibullah, who had been the president for the previous eight, nine years, and then hanged him and his brother. They chopped off his genitals, 
while he was still alive and took him and hanged him in a lamp post outside the UN compound. Uh, when they took over Kabul this time, they did nothing of that sort to uh, uh, Hamid Karzai and all those people. Nobody who collaborated, none of the senior leadership who collaborated with the Americans was executed that way. Where are they kept now? Uh, they're quite free. Uh, I, I don't know them personally, but I know them through very dear friends who are on a first name basis with them. They, they're kind of free to move around. I mean, they can't just go, where, I mean, it's not exactly uh, you can go abroad, but within Kabul and within Afghanistan, they have freedom to move. Uh, so yeah, it was a very weird. Uh, Do you think the Taliban is being funded by other countries? Uh, I think we're funding them now. Uh, largely. Really? Yeah, a lot of them come, you know, my doctor friends, they all tell me that, you know, uh, there's always, uh, every week there's a new bunch of Afghan patients who come where the government picks up the tab for their treatment in Delhi. And, you know, that 50% that I got right was that even the Haqqani network, which is as per Indian literature prior to uh, the fall of Kabul last year, uh, was implacably hostile to India and a complete puppet of the Pakistanis and the ISI. And I said very clearly, boss, that's not going to happen. The moment they come to power, they're going to screw Pakistan over. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're screwing Pakistan over. So there are a lot of the leadership coming to Delhi for medical treatment. Uh, and as I understand it, our contacts with them are growing. Um, remember, you know, for all the criticism of Indian foreign policy, even with the Taliban in power, except for those two years in 98, 19, or rather 99, 2000, when the Taliban, the Taliban 1.0 was in power, we have had the best of relationship with the Afghans, right? And it takes a lot to have that to project soft power and goodwill uh, into a country where you have no natural border with. Okay. Um, it is a case of my enemy's enemy is my friend, right? Yeah. It's effectively geopolitics. It is geopolitics, but it's also ethnicity. See, for them, Pakistan is a hated enemy. You know why? It's not just enmity just like that. It's There are more Pashtuns in Pakistan than there are in Afghanistan, right? And the way Pakistan sees Kashmir is the way they see the Northwest Frontier Province and North Balochistan. That right? it's ours. It should be it's ours. It should have been part of ours. The British illegally annexed it. It should have been given back to us. It has no business being part of Pakistan. So it's also, you know, and look, they've had very good relationships with the Iranians. Uh, they've not uh, rocked the boat. The Taliban 1.0 rocked the boat with the Iranians. But Taliban 2.0 hasn't rocked the boat with the Iranians, right? So uh, they're, they get along with everyone except Pakistan. And the Iranians don't have such a good reputation there as the Indians do. With Indians, there's, there's genuine affection. You know, they'll give you, they're poor people. They can't give you much, but they can give you something. So, you know, for example, shiryak is their form of uh, ice cream. Uh, you know, they'll always, uh, almost every shiryak place I went to, they'd give me a, uh, extra scoop for being in. You know, uh, there'd always be something free just for being in India. Uh, which, you know, was very touching because, you know, a businessman to give you something free, it has to come from the heart because he knows I'm not coming back there. So it's not like 
he's cultivating a repeat business whatever have you been to iran okay so iran is a very very curious case you know in 1979 when the shah was deposed uh iran had a higher per capita income and was at least or if not possibly more industrialized than taiwan and south korea okay and then the so called islamic revolution khomeini uh, happens and that industrialization is aborted everything just freezes in time right today had that trajectory continued they would have probably been ahead of south korea and uh, they would have been like say dubai or doha in terms of living standard they would have been a fully developed country uh, you know very stable uh, possibly i mean it's impossible to predict i'm going out on a limb out here but you know khomeini's real problem wasn't that he was a religious fanatic his real problem was he alienated every single person around him he alienated the saudis he alienated the americans he alienated the amiratis he alienated the iraqis he alienated the russians in the end he was left with absolutely no friends so you know in the first few years of the iran iraq war when he uh was winning the war uh everybody the russians and the americans who couldn't stand each other and were threatening to nuke each other got together to supply saddam hussein with equipment to defeat the iranians and towards the end saddam hussein was on the verge of crushing the iranians when uh, you know iran finally sued for peace and there's that famous speech of khomeini where he you know he takes the uh, poisoned chalice so to say and he says i'm going to drink from the poisoned chalice let this peace be on nobody except my head um uh, and they are a society whose creativity culture everything have kind of been caged up and it went from a very progressive society to uh there's still a very open society incidentally you know? so don't believe all this what you see in tehran and do you watch tehran on apple tv no okay but if you watch these stories about you know how iran is it's certainly not the iran that i know ever since i've been visiting iran right uh but it's you can see there's a lot of um i won't say fear but they want to talk about everything except politics they don't want to have a political conversation at all there are lots of power factions because you know absolute power corrupts absolutely so the ruling party the iranian revolutionary guard the mullahs and everything they are so corrupt uh, there isn't a single mullah's son or grandson who isn't driving around in ferraris or lamborghinis and things like that uh, and because it was under sanctions for so long you know what sanctions do is they create a black market and that entire black market is controlled by the powerful people out there you mean in the long term so another country will say listen we're not going to trade with you when it comes to this commodity correct therefore it leads to some rise of that commodity within within that country which gets controlled by one faction within the government right. mafia mafia mm. essentially mm. essentially right there's a criminalization of government um and like like you said with all rich people they've got their pads in dubai and things like that uh but what i did not expect was for the sudden saudi iranian rapprochement to happen that has happened last month uh and especially i know why china was involved in it it's not like the chinese negotiated the saudi iran give context here oh sorry okay so um 
I actually thought that, you know, uh, ever since Israel, Saudi Arabia and uh, the Emiratis kissed and made up, it created this sort of triangle of iron where they're all equally focused on uh, containing or defeating Iran. Because, like I said, Ayatollah Khomeini went out of his way to make enemies with everybody. Unnecessary. Uh, and now, I guess what's happened is that the Saudis and, the, to a lesser extent, the Israelis, they're still quite worried about it. But the Emiratis find that the Biden administration is so insufferable that they'd actually rather make friends with the Iranians than follow the diktats of Biden. Uh, it Technically, it shouldn't have come as a surprise. I probably overestimated the bitterness that existed between the Saudis and the Iranians. And you know, the deal was negotiated by the Chinese. Well, it wasn't negotiated by the Chinese. Apparently, MBS just got the Chinese there to spite the Americans and say, you know, I can do without you. And if you're not going to play by our rules, we can get the Chinese in. So it was kind of a threat to the Americans. The Israelis, very surprisingly, for them, Iran is enemy number one. And I'm not seeing panic in Israel. In my private conversations with my Israeli friends, they're like, let's see. They're non-committal. They think MBS might be able to achieve something more substantial uh, than Biden could. Break down this achievement okay. according to yourself. So the achievement... Okay, so American achievement is Israeli-Saudi failure. What the Americans consider their 100 on 100 is for Israel and Saudi Arabia 0 on 100. And I'll give you the history of this. So uh, Obama negotiated the Iran nuclear deal. And Saudi Arabia and Israel's big problem with the Iran nuclear deal was it wasn't a permanent deal, right? It was a 15 to 20 year period where Iran would not go nuclear. It would have safeguards on its nuclear reactors and things like that. But in return, America removed sanctions that weren't just related to nuclear weapons building, they also removed sanctions that were related to terrorism. And remember, the prime target of Iranian terrorism has been Israel and Saudi Arabia, less Saudi Arabia, more Israel. So you know, they were getting very upset that, you know, you, you're actually rewarding these guys. They've not toned down their terrorism and you haven't even got a permanent renunciation of nuclear weapons from the Iranians. At the end of that 15-20 year period, they're still going to have all the capacities to build nuclear weapons, but they'll also build up their economy. So they'll be in a very good position to resist more sanctions if they're imposed 20 years down the line. So the Iranian, so the Israelis and the Saudis and the Emiratis, they hated Obama. Uh, you know, they, they even now in private, they use some of the most choicest abuses for Obama, uh, which is very surprising for the Republicans because they always used to accuse him of being a Muslim. And it's quite surprising what the Israelis and especially what the Arabs use for him in private is like next level. I'm going to repeat it here. Uh, then came Trump. And Trump had a very different idea. You know, the problem with, uh, you've heard that poem, no? the six wise men of Hindustan who went to see the camel. And they all touch a different part and they think it's a totally different beast. So the problem here was that there was so much so-called expertise 
on how to deal with the Saudis, how to deal with Iran, how to make peace between the Arabs and the Israelis. Trump said, you're all morons. Get out of here. Uh, he cracked down on Iran. He canceled the deal because he said, look, let me first create a common enemy. You guys hate each other, but you hate the Iranians more. Let's all gang up on the Iranians and then you'll see how you two are connected to each other. And that kind of opened up a sort of diplomatic rapprochement between the Emiratis, the Saudis on the one hand, and the Israelis. And so, you know, Trump brought about more diplomatic recognition of Israel in his four years than the previous seven, eight, nine presidents had over the previous 40, 50 years. Just by saying, listen, get together, target that enemy. It's a very classical use case from geopolitics. Exactly. When people are fighting together, get them together and say, listen, don't fight amongst each other, fight against that. Yeah, and you know, it's a very basic principle of geopolitics, right? You, it's, mm. it's almost like two plus two equals four. Mm. This is not something that requires rocket science or a PhD to understand. Mm. And yet in all that sort of pseudo scholarly, pseudo academic discourse in DC, they had made this seem like a very complicated problem, which it was not. Mm. Right. They went on insisting the Saudis and the Emiratis will never work with the Israelis unless there's a free Palestine. And both the Saudis and the Emiratis were happy to just dump Palestine. These days, they don't even bother criticizing when uh, Israel does something to the Palestinian territories. Right. Only girls on Instagram do. Yeah, only girls on Instagram. Some do. girls, not all girls. And Twitter too. And Facebook. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, see, you keep looking at the girls. I keep looking at what the boys do. Uh, the boys don't do this, by the way. Only the girls do. Um, what happened was, uh, you know, after that, after Trump loses the election, you have Biden. Now, Biden hates MBS because he thinks MBS and M so MBS in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ in UAE, gave Trump diplomatic victories that Trump did not deserve. Uh, that they supported Trump, that Trump's Iran policy and therefore, because remember, Biden was vice president under Obama. He had a lot to do with the Iran deal, and that they torpedoed his legacy. Plus, there was the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, so, uh, which is more of, uh, it's the excuse. It's not the real reason Biden doesn't like uh, the Emiratis and the Saudis. The Democrats in general don't like the Emiratis and the Saudis. Uh, they started poisoning the relationship with the Arabs, with their old allies, which, you know, you don't do. Uh, but this is how bad DC has become these days. And uh, they went on talking about how can we get the Iran nuclear deal back on track, uh, completely ignoring what the Israelis wanted, completely ignoring what the Saudis wanted, completely ignoring what the Emiratis wanted. And, you know, a lot of the coming together of the Emiratis, Saudis, and Israel also had to do with the fear of Trump. Because they never knew. Remember, when Trump was getting elected in 2016, he used to go, he used to say the nastiest things about the Saudis and the Emiratis. He used to call them all terrorists and this and that. But when he came to power, he became their best friend. Um, so a lot of it was, Trump is unpredictable. Let's latch on to Israel. Israel knows how to work Washington, D.C., the powers of uh, the corridors of power in Washington, D.C., let's latch on to that. There's many things that brought those countries together, right? Now, Biden hates Netanyahu equally as he hates Mohammed bin Salman and to a lesser extent, Mohammed bin Zayed. 
and the feeling is mutual. They hit him right back. Biden tried to change the government in Israel. You know, there was active political interference in Israel, which then brought another prime minister. Now, of course, Netanyahu is back after the election. Um, so they share a mutual hatred of Biden now. They share a mutual hatred of the Democrats now, largely, uh, because this is how the Democratic Party thinks. And uh, it just became what brought them together in reverse. Instead of Iran being the big enemy, America is the enemy, which they're not going to call the enemy, but they've all decided that not America, Biden and the Democrats are uh, like, you know, like Lord Voldemort, he who cannot be named, mm. they refer to Biden as he who cannot be named. It's like that cool kid in college who suddenly becomes uncool at some point when people realize yeah. he's an asshole. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's what's happening? That's what's happening. Iran specifically, you know, micro level what's happening? Huge economic problems. Okay. okay. Huge social problems because what's happened is uh, Iran has a chronic drug problem. I have never seen drugs being consumed the way they are in Tehran and Esfahan. Just hash or like? No, no, all kinds of crap. I mean, I didn't even bother asking what the hell some of that stuff was, but it seemed like chemical. I think it was crystal. I mean, I don't know what the hell uh, this is because my only uh, time I've seen crystal has been on Breaking Bad. Uh, mm. you know, so I don't know if that is actually what crystal looks like, but uh, hardcore uh, drugs and partying and all of that. Uh, almost an aimless life amongst the elites. Uh, because what happened was during Khomeini's time, he asked them to produce lots of kids to feed the war. So they had a huge population explosion, lots of young people but no jobs because he alienated everybody. So who's going to invest in Iran? No jobs, lots of young people. Uh, they get more and more restive. Uh, they're completely disillusioned with the political system because, you know, in CNN, BBC, or Indian news, which copies what's here because they don't actually have correspondence in Tehran, they'll tell you, oh, this guy's a reformist president and that guy's a conservative president. You know, uh, Khatami was a reformist. Ahmadinejad was a uh, 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 regressive, obscurantist uh, uh, dick. Not true. As far as they, the Iranians are concerned, these are both same sides, uh, two sides of the same coin. Because, you know, Khatami, who was the reformist democratic president, was one of the worst executioners of Khomeini when Khomeini was in power. Uh, you know, my first memory of Tehran, which was in 85, 86, I forget when now, but somewhere in the mid 80s, was when you came out of the old airport, it was the first uh, roundabout outside the airport, three people hanging from a crane. The f yeah. And, you know, they don't do it the nice way we Indians do, which is, you know, you allow the guy to drop and so the neck snaps and the death is instantaneous. You you're dead even before your brain has time to process it. They do the slow hanging method, which is they tie you to the crane and then they lift the crane up so you're slowly, slowly choking to death. Nasty. I, I suspect, I mean, I didn't see it happen, but I was like, oh my God, that's, that's the first body I've seen. Bodies that I've seen. How does it so, feel seeing bodies like that? I mean, there was a novelty value, I guess, to it. I mean, I was very young then. I, I don't know how I felt except... I mean, I know I was shocked, but I don't remember the exact. Okay. I mean, it still stayed with me. So it was clearly quite 
impactful. I just don't know how it impacted me at that point of time. Um, so, you know, it was, Khatmi wasn't a nice man. Uh, all these people that the Western press will tell you are reformist, pro-democracy, even nasty pieces of shit. So, you know, now there is actually people who want something different. Uh, and you saw that, I think, during the 2014, 15, 16, I forget when, uh, people's uprisings against all governments, uh, so-called reformist or conservative. What you're seeing today in terms of, uh, you know, the hijab removal movement, uh, it's a mix. There is a sort of elitist element to it, but a lot of the people who are equally disillusioned with both sides are also joining. It's just impossible to tell because I've not been able to communicate with all my friends for a very long time. They're blocked. WhatsApp is blocked. Uh, Instagram is blocked. Uh, everything is blocked. I think, uh, uh, yeah, uh, and most of them have Android, so they can't even come on Apple Messenger and Apple Messenger isn't blocked for some strange reason. <laughs> okay. iMessage, sorry. We've reached that point in this episode where I ask you about World War Three. How often do you get asked about World War Three? Very often. And, you know, I keep telling people the story of uh, Norman Angle. Do you know who Norman Angle was? So he was a guy who won the Nobel Peace Prize, one of the earliest winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. And he wrote a book in 1910 or 1911 called The Great Delusion. Or was it the Great Illusion? I forget. And uh, he said that the world was so interconnected, uh, war was impossible. And guess what? Two, three later, years later, World War One started, right? Um, so there's a lot today to say the world is too interconnected. You can't really have World War Three, but then you never know what happens tomorrow. And I mean, I really never thought Putin was going to. I knew. Uh, Putin would ultimately invade Ukraine. Uh, I did not expect it. And a lot of people, all my friends in, uh, who are linked to the intelligence community in Germany, in Israel, in France, were all predicting, A, this would not happen. And B, if it happened, Russia would walk over in three, four days. Uh, the only people who went on saying, my friends who saying, Abhijit, you're wrong, this is going to happen, were my American and British friends. and. Uh, I did not take them seriously uh, because, you know, you have your own internal filters and usually I get so much anti-Russian propaganda for them. You kind of tend to zone out and mm. so, you know, how we criticize the Americans that they only listen to what they want to listen to. I guess I fell into that same trap. Okay. As a geopolitical observer, having contacts in places like Afghanistan and Iran, specifically highlighting that region. Mm. Do you think it could be the beginning of something? Things could explode from there? No. Or it's Russia-Ukraine, if at all? Uh, it's Russia-Ukraine, if at all. That Even there, I don't think it's going to explode. I think what's going to happen is war fatigue is going to set in in about two, three years. And um, Russia will achieve most of its objectives possible. Or if Russia has to lose the war, then the war has to continue for about 10, 15 years. And I don't want to know how many people get killed in that. I really, because I have way too many um, uh, love interests as <laughs> well in uh, Russia and Ukraine. And not so many in Ukraine, lots of Russians. Um, and I don't uh, want to think about that. 
Uh, Iran, again, I my own thing is it probably won't because I don't think people realize the level of social control that the government has on the people out there. Where? Uh, in Iran. It's so pervasive. Uh, you know, there's... Um, it's a full-on surveillance state. You know, the local uh, mullah in the street will keep tabs on everybody and report everybody. I've never come across a culture so averse to discussing politics as Iranians in Iran. When you meet Iranians in uh, uh, the city that's called Tehranopolis, which is Los Angeles, uh, they only want to talk politics. You mean there's a lot of Iranians in Oh Los yeah, LA. Los Angeles has a massive Iranian population. Uh, they want to talk politics. But in Iran, like, you know, it's the moment you want to start talking politics, they're like, oh, okay, let's, let's talk about food. Let's talk about this kebab or let's talk about this korma or let's talk about the latest movie that's come out. Damn. Yeah. What's their perspective on India? Uh, indifferent. They don't Lonely. really think about India. They don't have any uh, uh, knowledge of India. Uh, they don't care about India. Uh, Indian cultural influence there is zero. Uh, uh, they actually look down quite a bit on India. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they genuinely think that they civilized us possibly. I mean, they won't tell me that to my face. They're very polite people. You know, in Iran, if you want to insult somebody, uh, if I want to say, um, Ranveer Allahabadia, you're the biggest fool I've ever met in my life, an Iranian will never say that to you. He'll say, Ranveer Allahabadia, you are God's uh, shadow upon earth. You're the, uh, the celestial glow of your intellect emanates everywhere. You know, this isn't studio lighting we're seeing. This is your, uh, the glow of your intellect that is, and all the time he's actually calling you an fool, a bigger fool. And a triple asshole and a quadruple asshole mm. and a universal rectum. But he's, it's sickeningly sweet, polite. That is how you insult in Iran. <laughs> it's called tarof. You know, in Hindi, we say tarif. tarif. Yeah. So it's called tarof. And it is the most, um, it, it's how civilized people insult each other. They don't and just... you can do it in public. Mm. You can do it in front of the kids because you're not teaching the kids bad language. You're not going, hey, exactly. going like, okay. You're saying, you know, uh, the, the sun doesn't rise in the east and sets out of the west. It actually mm. comes out of your rectum in the mornings. And, mm. you know, so it's like, uh, so Iranians are, uh, they, they really don't give a damn about India. Um, which... I know Indians would love to be, to figure somewhere there, but they have this image of them being one of the great world empires. Historically, mm. they have, right? They were the ones who were Alexander's primary enemy. They were the ones who were Rome's primary enemy. They were the ones who were Byzantium, so the Eastern Roman Empire after Rome falls, primary enemy. They were the primary enemy of, the Ottoman Empire was the primary, um, uh, well, not the Ottoman Empire so much, but, uh, you know, uh, they were the, secondary, they don't want to accept that they were the secondary enemy of the Ottoman Empire. They prefer to think of themselves as the primary enemy of the Ottoman Empire, which is, you know, the Ottoman emperors used to call themselves the Sultan of Rum, the, the Roman emperor, Kaiseri Rum. Uh, so for them, it was a continuation of this East versus West battle and that they were always the guardians of the East and the defenders kind of, they are a great empire where like one of those uh, you know, they live in Antilla 
and the rest Indians live in Dharavi. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So many high school analogies that come to my head when you describe <laughs> it this way. You know that kid who's like probably flunked continuously still in yeah. 12th standard but thinks he's the shit. Yeah. Mm. All right. Podcast number two. Let's go. Okay. How was this one for you? This one was great fun. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Next one's going to be deeper. You, you know, you make talking very easy. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. You know why? It's because my light comes out of these. <laughs> That's it. How does it. The sun shines out of your head. That's it. <laughs> All right. <coughs> Podcast number two. Deeper, darker, better. Mm. With lots of light. Yeah. <laughs> That was the episode for today. If you enjoyed this one, the next one gets darker, grittier. It's more about North Korea and China. Tell me what you thought about this one. Abhijit Ayer Mitra is going to be back for multiple episodes. That's why, you know the drill. Give me your feedback. Tell me what else you'd like to hear me discuss with him. This was another epic episode of the Renway Show. Stay tuned for the sequel to this one, which is just as gritty, if not grittier. See you soon.